Hello and welcome to episode 17 of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we apply the superglue of comedy to the lavatory seat of literature. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the Mathematical Mystery Series of Comic Thrillers published by Farago Books. And I'd just like to mention the fifth and sixth books in the series have just been commissioned, so I currently find myself at that delightful point where I will do almost anything to avoid actually getting down to writing them in case everything turns to dust. Anyway, today's episode is my first one back after a short break from podcasting, although the short break turned out to be slightly longer than I anticipated, owing to the fact that I spent some time reading the wrong book for this episode, but more of that later. My guest today is publishing industry legend Scott Pack, whose remarkable and varied CV includes a stint as head of buying for Waterstones, at which point he was described by a number of people as the most powerful man in UK publishing and many more as a publisher himself, starting out the Friday Project and going on to Aardvark, iLightning, Unbound and Abandoned Bookshop. He's recently retired from full-time publishing and now spends his time inventing questions for television quiz shows, freelance editing and writing his own books. His published works include an absolutely gorgeous collection of haiku called Weightless Fireworks, as well as the Tips from a Publisher series and, under his pseudonym Steve Stack, a number of excellent toilet books, including 21st Century Dodos. Goodreads also lists him as the author of Anyone Can Play Country Guitar, but I'm guessing that may be a different Scott Pack. He's also a long-standing member of the literary Twitter community under the handle Me and My Big Mouth. Welcome, Scott. Anything I've left out there? Oh, yeah, there's lots of stuff you left out. <laughs> there is. It's lots of stuff I would like in the public. to own up to. <laughs> so, no, that was very kind of you. Thank you very much. That was a good, that was a good summary of the last 25 years or so. <laughs> Great. Okay, well, we'll talk more about what Scott's up to at the moment later on. Uh, but first, we're going to look at the book that he's chosen to talk about, which is The Wise Men of Schilder by the German writer Ottfried Preussler. I'd only ever heard of Preussler once before, and it was in the context of his book Krabat, which I believe you republished a few years back. I did indeed, yes. Preussler was someone I read when I was maybe 10 or 11. I remember, I, basically, I was woken up in the middle of the night by my dad who had been to drop some stuff off at the local charity shop and had found a box of books outside. Obviously, he and the other person were ignoring the uh, the famous legend on the front of all charity shops, which is, please do not leave stuff outside. <laughs> and he said, so I popped a fiver through the letterbox and took the box of books. Now, looking back, I'm not 100% convinced he did pop any money through the letterbox. Um, <laughs> he can't remember. But one of those books was a book called The Satanic Mill by Ottfried mm. Preussler which is a remarkable dark tale, which was the first book to elicit any sort of really deep emotional response from me as a reader. Mm. Um, namely, it scared the shit out of me. Mm. And I then, uh, it was a book I loved and uh, cherished. And then many, many years later, when I was a publisher, I was able to bring it back into print under its original name, which was Krabat, which is, mm. is what you've referred to before. Um, but he was sort of uh, Germany's, I mean, Roald Dahl is probably the wrong word, but he, he, if you think of a children's writer who had a bit of a dark edge to his writing and um, was around for many, many decades. So, you know, mm. there were several <clears throat> generations of people grew up with him. And that, that was that's sort of a way of summarising him. So when I started reading books to my kids, I sorted out, oh, I, I sought out his other works, uh, all of which were out of print. Mm. 
and including a wonderful series called The Robber Hotson Plots, which was on my shortlist as, as possible selections for today. But the one I settled on was The Wise Men of Shilda, because I remember very vividly that all of us were laughing out loud when I was reading it. <laughs> kids mm. and I don't actually I mean I'm you know I've been working in the book world for most of my working life and I love books and I read daily and I write but oddly books don't very rarely get a massive emotional response I don't laugh out loud at that mm. many books I can't I can't even remember I can't remember a book that's ever made me cry Cravat was really the last book that scared me so I don't have massive highs and lows of emotion maybe I'm letting you into a bit too much information about me. <laughs> But the Wise Men of Shilda did make us all laugh. And obviously, my kids were a lot younger then. They're grown-ups now. And children chuckling and laughing does, uh, does, is quite infectious. Yeah, so, yes, yeah, it's yeah. the Wise Men of Shilda by Otfried Preussler, which I read for the first time probably when I was in my 30s. And when you kindly invited me onto the podcast, although I can't believe there were 16 people you invited before me, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, before before, you know, before no. I, I, I felt that I could dare to invite you, that was that was how. It was. Oh, no, that's fair enough. You got to build. Yeah, to be fair, I did. Yeah, I didn't want to be in the, in the first couple of shows if they're going to be lots. Yeah, of yeah, no, absolutely. yeah, very good point. I, I well well saved there. I like that. But yeah, so I, I looked through. I actually I actually pulled up. I did what I guess a lot of your guests do. I went to my bookshelves, had a look, and thought which of these books I've kept are funny. And I pulled off about seven or eight books, and this was one of them. And I I started rereading it straight away, and I thought, no, this is absolutely the one. Because as I was reading it, I found lots of parallels with things that are going on today, which we can get into later. But yeah, it's mm. The Wise Men of Shilda by Otfried Preussler. Because mm. he, he sold 50 million copies, apparently, worldwide, according to Wikipedia. Yeah, and an awful, I mean, he's translated into lots of languages. And pretty much yeah. all of his books were translated into English in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Uh, and the Satanic Mill, now called Crabat, was actually selected by Neil Gaiman as one of his favourite Halloween reads for kids. And it's, a, it's amazing, but that was turned into a film a few years ago as well. So, yeah, he's a best-selling author, obviously largely in Germany, uh, and pretty much anyone uh, who grew up in Germany from the 60s through to the 90s will know who he is. But largely unknown over here. And I, I obviously I checked with you beforehand that it was OK to choose a book that people might find hard to get. And and you were okay with that, which I'm delighted. I mean, to, to be honest, I would have been disappointed if you didn't if you hadn't chosen something that was fairly obscure. <laughs> well, I, it, not from a, not from a viewpoint of showing off, of course, but I, I do <laughs> genuinely. But I do think with shows like this, you either celebrate something well known yeah. by bringing yeah. something new to it or your own perspective to it, or you try and turn people onto something they might not know about. Yeah, that's exactly um, right. And I I yeah. think. The I think the work of Otfried Preussler is fantastic, and certainly for younger kids reading things like the Rubber Hots and Plots and the Wise Men of Shilda, they're great stories to read aloud. And pretty much all of his books were translated into English by the wonderful Anthea Bell, who, who died a couple of years ago, I think, who is one of the greatest translators of, of, of German into English that there is. And so they're the beautiful, brilliant translations and they read wonderfully and, and were just such a joy uh, to read aloud. And, and this one, um, I actually spoke to my kids last week to say, oh, I'm doing a podcast. I'm going to be talking about this book. And they both remembered it vividly that, you know, it, oh, it, it has stuck with them. <laughs> and, and obviously a lot of books I read to them as kids, they can't remember at all. Mm. But yeah, this one, they, they vividly remember, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, maybe I should go talk about my, my massive cock up at this point because please, uh, you, please, please do yes yeah because you i mean after you said the wise men of shielder i went on to a books as if i could find myself a copy and 
there were two editions on there of the Wise Men of Schilder. And one of them, there's only one of, uh, what one copy available of, and it didn't look a particularly exciting cover. And there was several copies of another one. And I thought, well, oh, that looks a better edition. I'll order that one. And I'd been reading it for quite, I'd been sort of dipping into it for quite a while. And I didn't really find I was sort of getting gripped by it to the extent that, you know, I'd be reading it in one sitting. And uh, I was a bit disappointed. And I thought, what has he chosen here? <laughs> and of course, what I actually bought was a completely different edition, a completely different book, which is because The Wise Men of Shilda is itself a folk tale. Yeah. And this is ba- another book based on the same folk tale by Eric Selaf, adapted for children by Eric Selaf from the first edition of 1598 and from the Narun Buch of 1811. Translation by Moya Gillespie. Um, so, yeah, so uh, you, you, you were basically but, reading a, a not very funny version of the Yeah, book. exactly. It was just like it was, without the jokes. Yeah. And with a, a number of other crucial differences and quite fascinating differences that, that make, a, make a big difference to the appreciation of it. Interesting. I'm, I'm going to ask you, if possible, to lend me your wrong version so that you, I can... You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> it's rubbish. I don't want it. Yeah, no, I'd love, I'd love to have a look at that because uh, yeah. I, I think it's very interesting. But uh, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Um, so Preuss, although most of Preussler's work is original, this this story is loosely based on a sort of 16th century folktale, I think. It, it's actually quite uh, quite faithful to the folktale, strange mm. enough, because I, I recognise all the episodes... In, in, in the book from, from the other one. But uh, his delivery is better. Yes. And th- th- maybe we should get into describing the book first of all, and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what yeah, the book is. Yeah, good idea. I should probably tell yeah. our listeners. Do, 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 you, do you want to int- introduce, uh, introduce the book then? Yeah. So it's set uh, mainly in the town of Schilder, which I assume is in some sort of Germanic area of Europe, based on the, the date of the, of the folktale, you know, 16th century period. And effectively, this town has become famous for producing really wise men, wise men who become they are in significant demand. And, you know, kings and queens and emperors and rulers from across the world send ambassadors to Shilda to get advice from the wise men. And that's been the case for, for some considerable time. But then these rulers and kings and queens realise, look, it'd be much easier just to employ one of these wise men and keep them in our own court or palace or mm. castle or whatever. And so one by one, the wise men of Shilda go off and work at the four corners of the globe, which, of course, they didn't think of this, although they were wise, they were perhaps not that wise. It leaves Shilda without many wise men at all. And what happens is after a period of time, the women of Shilda get in touch with their men and say, oi, this isn't working for us. You need to come back. And in a, uh, a classic example of old gender roles, they're like, look, we need people to till, till the fields and build the walls and build new buildings and do all the manual labor because we can't do that. Um, so you've got to come back. And so the men come back and effectively the, the premise of the book is that they decide that they're no longer going to be wise. That the only way they can avoid being called over to the four corners of the globe is to be foolish. So all the wise men of Shilda, everyone decides, right, they're going to basically be fools from now on. And that's been the case for some generations until we join the book, mm. uh, which is narrated by the town clerk, Jeremiah. And 
What happens in this book is that the current men of Shilda, who are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the original wise men, think, well, well, hang on, we used to be great. We used to be this famous town full of wise men, and now we're not. We should absolutely be wise again. So they basically make a collective decision that they're going to be wise once more. And they then realise, well, hang on, we can't just suddenly be wise. We've got to sort of do something about that and somehow advertise the fact. So they they wrote a bunch of letters to all the neighbouring towns and villages and, and, and places. They basically said, I'm going to read from it here. We, the men of Shilda, hereby inform you that we are wise again. We earnestly request you to take note of this and be properly impressed. And, and that sets the tone quite nicely. And they decide that in order to be an impressive, wise town, they, they need a town hall. They need to build a town hall. They need a very impressive town hall. And I'll, I'll just go into a bit of detail on the town hall episode, because I think it beautifully illustrates mm. the, the premise of the book. So basically, they go to some neighbouring towns and villages to try and find someone who can design a new town hall for them. But they, don't want, any, they want something really impressive and different. But they're also a town of skinflints, and they don't want to spend much money. And you can either go for really ornate and grand, which costs a lot of money, or you can go for a bit odd and different and simple. And they, they end up with a mix between the two. They, they negotiate a deal. They get these plans for a triangular town hall. No one else has got a triangular town hall. We're going to be the envy of everyone. So they bring the plans back. They start building the town hall. But of course, early on, they leave the plans to one side, don't look at them again, finish off the town hall. They're all really excited. They set up a grand opening ceremony and they wander into the town hall and it's pitch black. Something's gone. What's, what's gone on? What's, there must have been something wrong with the plans. Have we been swizzed? What's happening? We can't see a thing. It's completely pitch black. And they're like, well, what, what should we do about this? There's no sunlight getting into the town hall. So they decide... One of them has the bright idea, because, of course, they're wise now, of course, after years of being foolish. <laughs> One of them decides, oh, 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 you know what we can do? You know how, like, when it rains, we catch rain in, like, buckets and, and, and butts and barrels and things. Well, let's just go outside and catch some sunlight in exactly the same way. So they all go outside and it's a nice sunny day. So they bring in buckets and all sorts of things. And they try and they empty all the buckets into the into the town hall so that all the sunlight that's been captured can fill the town hall. Then they go back in and it's still pitch black. And this is like, they can't work out what's going on. It's nonsense. And then what happens, and this happens in nearly every episode, is that some sort of traveller comes by and he goes, hello, what's going on here? And they're like, well, our, our town hall, it's pitch black inside. There's some, we can't work out what's going on. He's like, ah, oh, don't worry, I see the problem. If you pay me a nice sum of money, I'll tell you how to fix it. So, of course, they pay over the money. He says, take the roof off. You take the roof off the sun will get in of course genius excellent we'll do that so the, the guy pockets his hundred guilders or whatever it is and flees town very quickly and no sooner do they get the roof off but they run into the town hall it's full of light they're overly delighted and then it starts to piss down with rain and they all get wet <laughs> and they're just devastated anyway eventually they work out that they have missed the windows out of the plan and they've built basically a pyramid <laughs> with no <laughs> way of getting the light in so yeah and that's the first episode in a litany of ridiculous things that these townspeople do mm. at one point they decide that they're going to stop paying other people for salt so they'll grow their own salt and start sowing salt into their fields and then get it can't work out why the salt doesn't grow they want the the ox 
they try and get the ox to graze on top of the town wall because there's lots of grass on the town wall and it will save them money if they get the the, the ox to gra graze on there so put a, a a rope around its neck and heft it up on the wall and are completely confused as to why it's strangulated and dead by the time it gets up there so yeah lo lots of little examples of of these supposedly wise men doing things to show how grand and wonderful they are and getting it completely wrong with acts of gross stupidity. And there's like six or seven of these episodes and you as the reader know what's gonna happen, but the uh, the wise men of Shilda are completely oblivious to it. So mm. from a, it, it, it's a wonderfully amusing folktale, poking fun at sort of pomposity and pride and the idea that you can just decide to be clever. It's full of these wonderful characters, you know, the mayor and the town clerk and all these people and lots of wonderful dialogue. It's told with sort of great humour. And all along, you've got this premise in the back because it effectively in the opening chapter, they actually he actually reveals that look, the town is completely burnt to the ground. Mm. And there was a, a long held prophecy that cats would be the end. A cat would bring around the demise of Shilda. So cats were always banned from the town. But because they kicked cats out and uh, uh, they then had quite a lot of mice and rats. So towards the end of the book, a traveller comes in and <laughs> sells them a mouse hound. And he brings this animal and goes, this mouse hound, this dog will capture all the rats and mice in your town. And they're like, it looks an awful lot like a cat. Ah, yes, it might look like a cat, but it's really a dog. And obviously this dog in inverted commas does rid the town of all of the mice and rats and the villagers then real then think hang on it's just, it's eating all the mice and rats what's it going to eat next and they they're full of fear that it's just going to keep eating everything and we'll end up eating them so they ultimately spoiler alert uh, end up mm -hmm. um, burning the town to the ground in order to kill the mouse hound and all of a sudden shilda no longer exists and they all go there many ways so mm -hmm. so yeah it, the the i haven't told all the episodes there's lots of wonderful bits in there gr acts of gross stupidity and I, I i think it's a joy i think it's delightfully silly without being i would say without being vindictive or unpleasant you know there, mm -hmm. there's, there's a sense of joy to it you're, you although you are laughing at these people you you know there's a humanity there which i think is quite nice mm -hmm. So, yeah, so on one level, it's this wonderful folktale. I think Preussler has told it for a, con well, a then contemporary audience in a really engaging way. There's, lo there's lovely illustrations in it as well. And, and yeah, I, th I think it's great fun. I don't know, I don't know how you felt about it, but, but also when I reread it, and we can come on to this in a second, I guess, I, ju I just found loads of parallels with today's society. There was a big Brexit thing going on <laughs> when I read this. but but anyway but but the story itself i'd love i'd love to hear what you thought of it once you started yeah, reading the right one once i started reading the right one yeah i loved it i mean there's it's a lovely sort of feeling of there's a level lovely sort of light irony sense of irony mm. going through it, not there that's you know the the the, the jeremiah and, and, and all these chums that they they, they, they they they're desperately trying to sort of make things work and, and they think that, 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 that they're actually being wise again when they, they, anyone can see they're being incredibly stupid the whole time but what i tell you what what's interesting about Preuster's version is that in the other version i read the wise men there isn't the generational delay between in in the narrative ah interesting so, so they, they so just suddenly that, decide to be stupid yeah they suddenly decide to be stupid and they start doing stupid things and they start building the triangular town hall and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it feels like 
they're being a bit phony. And, and it doesn't have the, the sense that, uh, let's just see if I can get this right, that in, in, in process version, they are two or three generations on from yeah. the, 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 the original wise men. So they have, they have lost any wisdom that they would have had previously. And the stupidity effectively has been passed on from generation to generation rather than the wisdom. And I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, it is interesting that clearly he's taken that original story and thought, actually, I, I, in order to make it work, in order to introduce this irony, I need to, I need to do something with that. Which yeah. is, I think, now, of course, I've just, it's just dawned on me that you, having read both versions, you're now probably one of the world's leading experts <laughs> on, on the wise men of Shilda, because there can't be many people on the planet who have read both versions. No, I mean, I am soon to join you as one of the leading <laughs> I'm, I'm intelligentsia. I'm also just wondering if I may have read a slightly different version of Preussler's, a different translation of Preussler's version. I'm just wondering if it's a slightly simplified one, because you mentioned the Growing the Salt, which was in the, the original book I read, but I don't think it's in this one. Oh, interesting. It's weird. Interesting. Oh, so this may very, be... Very I, I may have bought the wrong book twice, which is Interesting. So just, just for the benefit of our listeners, yeah, the version I have mm. is published by Abelard Schumann Limited. Yep, got that. Uh, first published in 1962. Ooh, okay. Um, so, yeah, and mine's got... I've got... Mine says New Edition 1974. Oh, interesting. So mine's got like 180 so pages. 122. Uh, there we go. So you've had you've had some. Uh, this is fascinating. So so sorry. Can I take that back? You're no longer the world expert. The, <laughs> oh the dear, I've, got, I've I've now got to. I've definitely got a full version. <laughs> Excellent. So so you you do because honestly, there's there's fantastic stuff, which is wonderful. Yeah. The the um, the other thing that's worth mentioning, of course, is that uh, when they when they're out sowing salt in the fields, mm. another passing traveller comes by and asks them what mm-hmm. they're doing and, and finds it. And he goes, and he turns out to be one of the uh, advisors to the emperor. And yeah. the town then find out that the emperor is going to pay them a visit because he's heard how wise yes. they are. Of course, we all know that he's turning up because he thinks they're a bunch of buffoons, but yes. they don't. And so there's this yeah. wonderful preparation for the emperor coming. And when the emperor turns up, they recognize one of his assistants mm. as the man who watched them yes. plant the salt. But at no point do they realize that they've done anything wrong or been done anything stupid. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those great books. And also in terms of reading it to kids, you know, there's nothing unpleasant in this at all. It's all good fun. Mm. I mean, yes, mm. a, an ox does get strangled, but the worst <laughs> things happen in Roald Dahl. Yes. But it's got this it's got this wonderful episodic nature because there are about six or seven yeah. key incidents that happen. So you can read mm. a couple of chapters a night and leave them on a bit of a cliffhanger and or mm. end with a really satisfying, funny story. Mm. And And so, yeah, I thoroughly recommend it as something to read to kids. It's probably, you know, if you're our age now and you just sit down and read it as, you know, I'm sure you'll get some stuff out of it. But it's, that's not what it's there for. It's a children's story and it's there to read to children or for mm. children to read to themselves. So, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly recommend it and I think it would be great. But but yes, perhaps perhaps it's worth discussing the parallels that I felt. Yeah, go on. <laughs> so <laughs> as I'm reading it, I, I just realised, OK, so you've got these bunch of people who feel that their their town could have been that country but they feel like their town used to be brilliant yes 
and there's perhaps not quite <laughs> as brilliant and there are lots of reasons why that but you know if we suddenly decide that we're going to be great again then we will yep. be great again mm. and i but then everything they do goes wrong and they refuse mm. to acknowledge that it's going wrong or that mm. it's their fault that it's going wrong mm. and that really did now clearly Otfried Preussler was not predicting Brexit in any way, shape, or form. But <laughs> nor was the original folktale. But it does say to me that actually there is a universal truth in mm. the idea of people being too proud and too pompous mm. and wanting to achieve greatness when A, they can't, they, they do not have the capacity to do it. And B, it doesn't just happen. You know, you, you have to earn it. And, and I was thinking and, and you know, I'm not going to honestly, I'm not going to go off on a massive anti-Brexit rant here. But but I just thought it was interesting because just to be just to be clarified, just to clarify, I don't think that everyone who voted for Brexit is an idiot. They, they are not they are not the people of Shielder. There are lots of people who voted for Brexit for perfectly legitimate, understandable reasons that were important to them. And hmm. um, sure, there were a bunch of idiots who voted for it as well. But there were lots of people who had perfectly reasonable reasons for doing it. And I understand that and accept that. However, if any of those reasons were because of what Boris Johnson and Michael Gove said, and I believed them, then they, then yes, you are an idiot, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but 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 sort of fast forwarding now with not enough people, you know, be, now that we have, you know, removed the freedom of movement and we've reduced the number of immigrants coming in from Europe, especially Eastern Europe, and we don't have enough people to drive the lorries and uh, trucks to fuel our petrol stations or take food and, and vital stuff to our shops. And, you know, we are culling pigs. We've got dead pig mountains because we haven't got people manning out. Yeah. To, to go through all that and still think, oh, no, Brexit's fine. We're fine. That, those people are the wise men of Shilda, yeah. uh, in my opinion. And I found that parallel really, really interesting because I was really thinking this is not, well, well, actually, I was really thinking this is not a political analogy. But of course, it may well have been because the folktale wasn't necessarily designed for kids as such. Oh, it's a folktale designed for really. people. About it. So maybe it is a bit of a political analogy. Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah. So I, I, I found that idea of people trying to achieve greatness without necessarily because I do feel Brexit is a little bit of, uh, oh, we want to get back to good old proper Britain, Great Britain. And we don't need these foreigners to do it. And we can do all this ourselves. And, you know, we've at this point, it's like, well, look, if we, if we stop the immigrants coming in, then it will free up all these jobs for British people. OK, great. Do British people actually want these? Oh, God, no, we don't want that job. No, 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 no we don't. We don't want to do that work. No, that's, that's not for us. So. Um, so, yeah, I found I found new depths to it reading it this time round. Mm. And like I say, initially, I thought, oh, well, look, this was never the intention. But actually, when you think about it, maybe not Brexit, obviously, but but just poking fun at you know, uh, politicians and bureaucracy and, you know, groups of men trying to decide that they're going to do things better than anyone else um, could well have been part of the intention, of course. Yeah, um, no, it, uh, it's a universal thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, so, it's interesting. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it is it is a fantastic satire, I think, um, yeah. even if it may or may not have intended to be. Have you heard of the wise men of Gotham? I have not heard of the wise men of Gotham, no. Okay. The wise, it, just to show how universal it is, the wiser men of Gotham, I'm reading from Wikipedia here, is the early name given to the people of the village of Gotham, Nottinghamshire, in an allusion to an incident where they supposedly feigned idiocy to avoid a royal visit. Well, I live in Windsor, and I would perhaps <laughs> gladly um, 
gladly feign idiocy to avoid <laughs> any more royal weddings or anything like that. But that's interesting. I mean, and of course, with folk tales, of course, you know, it's impossible these days to know the true origins of a lot of these. Mm. But, then, you know, there are, you know, most of these things are based on some sort of element of truth. There's something yeah. that inspires them. So, may, you know, who knows? You know, there may, maybe this is based on something, you know, clearly not all of these things happened. Mm. I mean, there's another scene where they're, they're worried that there's going to be a war and the most precious yes. item in the town is their bell, their huge bell. So they go and they decide they're going to sink it. And so they row it out to the middle of the lake. And as they're about to drop it in, one of them goes, well, how do we know to, where to find it again? And one of them goes, oh, it's easy. I'll just mark a notch on the side of the boat where I drop it off. And then when we row back out, we'll know where it is. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> sorry, I'm not. And of course, when they do row back out, you know, weeks or months later, the notch is there on the boat and they keep trying to find Why can't we find it? I don't understand. The notch is right here. So there's lots of elements like that. And that also leads in, and I think one of the origin, one of the origin stories of uh, the Wise Men of S.H.I.E.L.D., part of that episode is that they, they, they're attacked in inverted commas by a, a crayfish or a lobster. And they see it as a sort of monster. And it's in the boat. And then what do we do? What do we do? And they decide to drown it. <laughs> so, so they throw it in the water and, and look underneath to watch it drown. And, and, and clearly it's not drowning. But yeah, there's lots of little wonderful episodes like that. There's, a, there's an early episode where they hear a cuckoo and then they hear an alternative cuckoo that may be someone like a cuckoo from another town and they get all protective of their own cuckoos. And uh, yeah, it, it's uh, every time I think of one of the episodes, I can th think of more parallels to Brexit and yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah the, you know, and, and anti-vaxxers, the stupidity of claiming uh, just all of this stuff, the, 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 the reality of what's going on around you, you refuse to accept is a reality because you've decided you're wise is, yeah. Uh, mm. Anyway, so so I'm delighted that I've chosen a wonderfully universal political satire <laughs> yeah. when actually I yeah. just chose a kid's story that made me laugh when I read it. Yeah, I, well, I, I think you need to um, get back into publishing and and, uh, and uh, republish it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but there might be there might be some sort of essay in it. Maybe maybe I can write an article. Yeah, this, I, I think you should you know, do this prophetic <laughs> this prophetic children's book because. Has, has proved to be proved to be true yeah, but yeah, yeah but just the just the idea of you know especially that the, the way the story ends they buy into this concept some you know you know someone tells them oh look do this and your place will be fine so you know nigel farage turns up with his mouse hound and says oh no no it's not a cat do this and everything will be brilliant and everyone goes oh great idea so they follow what his suggestion and then everything starts burning to the ground and they're like i don't understand how did we possibly get to this point we listened to this perfectly reasonable individual who sold us a cat pretending it was a dog. But there you go. Yeah. No, it's, um, it, 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 it's perfect. So there are copies. I mean, you, you will need to seek out second. If, if, if our conversation about this book has made you want to read it, then, mm. you know, it is possible to seek out copies, but do because some, some, some wise men, uh, are perhaps not <laughs> quite as wise when it comes to buying <laughs> buying books. You yeah. can, of course, always. Uh, people are always welcome to drop me a line on Twitter or wherever and ask me um, about the edition. And if anyone lives nearby, you can always borrow mine. <laughs> so that's <laughs> so that's fine. But yeah, no, I, 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 it was a delight to go back to rereading it. And I know, I, I know, I'm slightly forcing the analogy somewhat, but it's there. It's definitely there. 
Um, And I just, although I'm occasionally filled with despair about how this country is progressing, that did actually just make me chuckle a bit. And I did laugh out loud in various places, Mm. which was a nice position to be in. Yeah. Uh, And I I love the ending as well, uh, which of course may be different in your edition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, what's what's the ending of your... I'll I'll just read the end of this one. Because basically they, they all... They all sort of disperse. All, all yes. the people, all, all the people's children disperse. And he says, "Wherever they all are, I don't know. In one way, that's sad, but in another way, I'm glad of it. Wherever they may be living now, I'm sure they will remain true men of Shilda all their lives and will behave as such. They will hand down the spirit of Shilda to their children and grandchildren. And to the end, you'll be able to find at least a few people in every town and village and hamlet on earth who can be recognised immediately as descendants of the wise men of Shilda. I'm convinced of it." And that's a comfort. Well, I, the good news is that is exactly the same ending as in my. Oh, edition. great! <laughs> and, 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 and actually, that's one of the points where I laughed out loud because it was yeah. the uh, who can be recognised immediately as descendants <laughs> of the wise men of Shield. And uh, and I'm like, yeah, they absolutely can without question. Yep. Um, <laughs> there has been more than one occasion where I have seen someone be deeply, deeply unpleasant on Twitter, and I know before clicking on their profile that one of the words in their profile will be Brexit without question. And, and I've never been proved wrong. I've never been proved wrong so far. <laughs> it's not like I do it every week, but every now and again, you think what sort of ridiculous, unpleasant take is, Oh, okay. No, I understand that. I wonder just in general, I, I, I mean, from your, you're much more experienced in this whole area than I am, but I, I mean, are books for kids intrinsically? Well, that, 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 yeah, it's, it's obvious that, that books for kids are intrinsically more allowed to be humorous than those for adults. Yeah, it's it's seen as a, yeah, it's absolutely, especially for younger children. It's it's seen yeah. as a almost as almost as a requirement. To yeah. be honest, I mean, there will be obviously as children get older and they you know progress into to perhaps more different types of reading then sure you know you want to be scared and you know excited and moved and and that sort of stuff and and you know clearly i mean books like kenzaki's kin- kingdom and uh, other books like that where they're not particularly funny they're moments of humor but that's not why they're there so yeah but no no i think it's absolutely uh, and there's and because there's there's i would argue there there are few sounds better than the, the sound of children laughing and the idea that oh, yeah. you made them laugh by read albeit someone else's words uh by reading out someone else's words is is an absolute delight so so yeah i think it's yeah it's it, it's a real uh positive trait and it is somewhat knocked out of us because i i i you know, I'm trying to, I don't think at schools, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of the of the classic texts which tend to be on school curriculums. And I don't think any of them are funny. I don't think mm. so. You know, even the, generally speaking, even the Shakespeare that kids are forced to read are often the tragedies. <laughs> yeah. So no, there's, yeah, I, I would say actually, you're, yeah, so you could argue that you're taught that serious fiction isn't funny. And I think that's a shame because a lot of our, you know, a lot of our best writing is is humorous writing, and and it's weird, isn't it? We we will happily binge watch a show on television that's funny. Well, that, that's the weird thing that you know, television comedy is a thing, radio comedy is a thing, yeah. literary and, and, comedy isn't really. Yeah, no, I think it's very good, and I, and I and I you know I understand it's one one of the reasons why you started this podcast in the first place was to explore sort of yeah. aspects of that, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing: the Radio Four listener. Is given mm. comedy at six thirty every day of the week. Yes. 
Yeah. And lots of different types of comedy, but they're giving up. So, and it's, I think it's reasonable to say that the Radio 4 listener, generally speaking, the demographic is a certain age uh, and they're, they're big readers. Yeah. They are big readers. Yeah. And yet how many, so, and when, and actually, if you think about it, so you've got the comedy at 6.30 on Radio 4. So you've got people, you know, giggling, laughing, chuckling, whatever. Then you've got 15 minutes of the Archers. And then you've got whatever their arts review program is a couple of days mm. a week. And when do they review comic fiction? Probably yeah. never. Or very, yeah. very rarely. They'll review mm. new literary fiction. They'll review something in trans. Lots of really interesting stuff. Oh, but yeah. how often do they review comic novels? They'll review a new sitcom or a new Netflix series. They'll review maybe a comedy at the theatre but they're, they're very rarely going to review comic fiction. So, so no, I think you make a very, a very, very good point. And I also think a bit like all aspects of comedy, it's really hard to do. It's really hard mm. to write funny stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, it is odd. It's, uh, it's frustrating if, if what you, what you're personally trying to do is write comedy. But that's... it is. I mean, I think I think there's reasons for it. I mean, you know, and this isn't necessarily meant as a, 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 as a dig, but, mm. you know, the gatekeepers of reviews are the literary editors of the broadsheet newspapers and, 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 and other media. And, they, you know, they are all university graduates mm. who all. Uh, and if they did English at university, they would have, you know, their texts they would have studied are not comedies. You know, mm. for, for I would say from probably about the age of, you know, 12 or 13, you are taught in inverted commas when it comes to English literature, things that aren't funny. Mm. And in fact, you know, just an occasional moment of humor in a book that you're studying at school is seen as a massive deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, oh my God, everyone's laughing all of a sudden. This is, this is great. So no, I think it is, a, I think it is a real shame, but you know, if you've been to school and university and beyond, and you know, you, you are reviewing things, I think, I think, yeah, you tend to review serious stuff. I think more comedy should be reviewed. It's not taken as, uh, it's not taken as seriously. Uh, the phrase is a bit weird, but, it's, but it should be. Mm. Uh, we've got some great comedy. Well, and it, but it depends on it. I always find this quite interesting. So, for example, using a different genre, the sort of bonkbuster novels of Danielle Steele and all those sort mm. of people are some, I would say, not frowned upon, but they're certainly not supported by the, uh, the literary world. You know, no. you're not, you know, they're not going to be given pride of place in a, in a review page, but Jilly Cooper will be, mm. uh, who's writing very well, but basically the same sort of stuff. Likewise, comic fiction is not, doesn't get a lot of space in the review pages, but they all love Woodhouse. Yes. And in fact, if anyone writes anything about Woodhouse, it's almost certainly going to get some coverage. You know? yes. So, so it's, in, so it, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it is a, it is a very selective thing somehow jilly cooper is the acceptable bonk buster mm. uh, whereas all the other people writing just as well her books are great fun and i completely you know i have no issue with that at all but there are lots of people writing stuff that's just as good as her and they don't get reviewed a new jilly cooper book is reviewed in every broadsheet newspaper every time every mm. time without exception and 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 woodhouse is a reference point yeah. uh, for comic <clears throat> fiction uh, well there, there, there are three reference points for comic fiction which is woodhouse Adams and Pratchett. Yeah, and that's and those and, are the, and, and what's fascinating about Casey Victoria, Victoria Woods will, will get a mention, but she didn't yeah. write any novels. Yeah, um, <laughs> and of course, and of course, Wood, uh, Adams and Pratchett are writing in genres that don't get a look in very much in yes. the reviewers yeah. reviews anyway. Yeah, and in fact, I'd be I'd be fascinated to know when Pratchett first got reviewed. It wasn't for a long time. 
in the broadsheet. Not for very, a long very time. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it happens, you know, uh, authors become acceptable or uh, or you or they're so big, you can't ignore them. Mm. And yeah, and I, I find it. Interesting. But but I mean, you know, I, I think it just. Uh, uh, I, I think in this days of social media, people understand that newspapers review certain types of books. Mm. And if you like those sort of books, you'll read the newspapers for the reviews. If you don't like, or, or if you like a wider range of books, or you like a different genre, you go else. You just go elsewhere. You're not. You're not going to look at the broadsheet newspapers for those. They're just not going to be there. Mm. Um, so you're reliant on social media and blogs and, and stuff like that. And I think most people these days get an awful lot of their recommendations that way. Yeah, yeah. So you're you've, as I say, you, you've effectively retired from full time publishing. And yeah. So you are. You've been writing something. You've mentioned a few things on Twitter about it. Well, yeah, no. So, so basically, I, I mean, I've been working in the book world for most of my working life, or the majority of it. I, I just, when you're a publisher, I, I'd, I'd gravitated. So I, I, you know, I was, I was running an imprint of HarperCollins for six or seven years, and then I, I decided to go a bit more part time, uh, and so I'd, I've worked for a couple of smaller publishers over the last five or six years. But even as a part-time publisher, you sort of have to be there every day. You sort of have to be online every day because you don't know when an author might need your help. You don't know when a, a cover design might come through and you might need to check it out. So, uh, you know, being perfectly honest with you, I just got fed up with having to do that all the time. I love the books I'm publishing. I, you know, I'm very proud of them, but it's like, you know what? I, there's other things I want to do. Mm. And for as long as I keep publishing, I'm always going to have to put aside a chunk of my day to that. And I thought, realistically, I'm not, I mean, I'm not ancient, but I'm not getting any younger. If I want to do more writing, if I want to do some other projects, and if I want to read some of these books I've got on the shelves, that I've not got around to reading. Because when you're in your 20s and you've got a bookshelf that contains more unread books than read books, it doesn't matter. Because you've got your whole life ahead of you. Yes. You know, now... Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm, I must admit, when I'm choosing a book to read, I, I look, at, look at the size of it and think, oh, wow, I don't know. Well, yeah, how much, how much time I, have I got left? I was yeah, exactly. I was completely undaunted when I was younger. Now, so I turned fifty last year, and I'm looking at the shelves, thinking, well, you know, I, I read about hundred books a year. I read mm. a lot, but I've got to keep going for quite a while for those hundred books a year to to, to eat into <laughs> my collection. Mm. So, so partly I want to do that. I've got a few writing projects that I'm working on, and um, so I've just delivered a manuscript to a publisher who's quite an old school publisher. So they technically haven't announced the book yet. Oh, so I can't say, I can't say what F it is. Fiction or nonfiction? It's nonfiction. It's co-written with a friend of mine and it does right. focus on an as aspects of literature and books. And it's not like it's top secret or anything. It's just that mm. they just haven't announced it yet. So I, <laughs> so I can't do it. It's been, and they're like, oh no, no. Once we've got it scheduled and we've got a cover and it's all ready, then, we, then you mm. can start talking about it on social media. And, I, yeah. and, and of course I'm like, well, look, I, Talk about it six months ago and we might have we could get a real interest in it but anyway mm. it'll be coming out next christmas <laughs> so so there's no right. rush there's no rush and um, so i've just right. delivered that uh, we've got the final just editorial checks on that if that works there's an obvious follow-up mm -hmm. and then there's a few other things i want to do I've, I've got two or three ideas for books about books basically mm. um, which gives me an excuse to read a lot of the books in my collection and then you know there's fiction that i've been working on and some other ideas and, and a few other bits and pieces and and yeah, so so I'm just sort of finding out what I'm trying to do is create a situation in which I can because I do a lot of freelance editing. Mm. 
Mm. I edit for private clients, people who are self-publishing or people who are just about to start submitting and want an editor to look over their work. I do a lot of that. Mm. And I'm trying to create a working situation where I can, I get up in the morning, I work until lunch and then I stop, uh, which I'm sort of managing to do. I'm very lucky mm. to be able to do that. Mm. So I know how privileged I am and fortunate I am, but that's what I'm, that's the working day I'm trying, because I want to carry on doing something, mm. but I also want to, you know, watch all the movies on my watch list and read all the books on my shelves <laughs> and i want to you know try baking and cooking new things and there's you know cut kitchen, kitchen cupboards that haven't been cleaned out for 10 years you know all that's there's all sorts of things i want to do you know i want to go walking more and when you've got a, a job that keeps you at your desk all day you know there, there are lots of other things I want. so basically that's it i'm just winding down a bit hmm. but we'll still be doing stuff but i do have funnily enough the, the the last book i will ever properly publish which is out in november hmm is a very, very funny book and is one of the very few books I've published that did make me laugh out loud, which is Sour Grapes by Dan Oh, Rhodes. the Dan Rhodes one. Um, which yeah. bas- basically, <laughs> many years ago, Dan Rhodes got a very snidey review <laughs> for a live reading he did from a certain well-known writer and critic years ago. Mm. Now, I'm not saying there's any connection, but this book is about a literary festival in the Cotswolds where a rather gaunt looking writer called Wilberforce Selfram <laughs> turns up <laughs> Ooh, uh, gosh, as if, uh, uh, and one. refuses to use a one syllable word when a 12 syllable word will do. And basically it's about his adventures and exploits at this literary festival. Mm. Now, I don't know if there is a connection. I, I, I don't know for sure who gave Dan that terrible review 20 years ago. And of course, Wilberforce Selfram is a completely made up person. However, however, it's a wonderful revenge is best served cold and it's brilliantly served. <laughs> but he absolutely rips into the whole of publishing. He rips into the fact. So, so in, in this story, there, the, the, the lords and ladies who own the major publishing houses have a competition to see who can employ the most working class person because of course we don't want that many people working class people in publishing but if we can if we can somehow give each other a prize for employing a working class people so it's like well i've got someone from croydon so so there's that going on it also massively takes the piss out of literary festivals and a lot of his fellow authors some of whom are named and some of whom are very (laughs) disguised it's so funny Anyone who's worked in the book world, been to a literary event, been an author, knows authors, worked in publishing, it, they are going to recognise so many classic situations in it. It is so, so funny. And it's a joy. And actually, it was a book that eff- effectively Dan didn't feel he could get it published because <laughs> we'd, we'd all got lawyers. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, satire and parody. You can get, a, yeah. you can get away with quite a lot. So, so no, it is absolutely hilarious. It's out in November and I think it's going to, if it can get in, into the hands of the right people, I, I yeah. mean, it is, it is a book that should be reviewed in all the broadsheet newspapers because they will recognise everyone in it. Mm. Whether or not they do or not remains to be seen because it's a comic <laughs> novel and we know they're allergic to them, but we'll see yeah. what happens. Mm. I look forward to that. Mm. Yeah. So uh, we've got time for just maybe a few last questions, but I, I, about... The, the, I, how do you see this is a really big question how do you see the future of future of publishing do you oh. see <laughs> it's easy here you know 
I mean, do you see it more, more and more self-publishing, more unbound type stuff? To what extent <coughs> um, will the, the four big four still be in charge of everything? Or it's 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 interesting. So, um, so, so just some random thoughts in no particular order. Mm. Specialist book retail in the UK is reliant on two things. It's reliant on Waterstones and it's reliant on a thriving independent sector. Hmm. I think independent bookshops, although you know, there, aren't, there are no millionaires running independent bookshops, I think they're doing an incredible job. Um, they, they seem to be popping up all over the place as well. Yeah, I, I, I think Which they is, are perhaps a, a little bit more viable. And I think the whole evil Amazon not paying tax has driven mm. people who do have more of a disposable income to spend their money at independent bookshops. I make no judgment on people who buy books at deep discount from Amazon because mm. you've got to spend your money wisely. I make yeah. no judgment on that at all. Mm. And I buy books from Amazon and still continue to do so. But I also try and buy books from independent bookshops as much as I can. So I think that that sector is doing quite nicely. And I think we are potentially reaching a point where people will shop local more and more and we'll try and support local businesses and independent businesses. Now, it doesn't mean independent book selling is going to be easy, mm. but I do think that is a number of independent booksellers will continue to flourish and do well. Waterstones, I have a bit of a question mark over because, you know, it's a massive estate and, you know, there is a chance they might not be around forever. I'm sure various aspects of the book selling of the publishing industry will do their very best to keep them going. But, it must have been hard to have, sh to have shut down for so long over uh, the pandemic. Mm. And, and also then um, I classify them these days as a reactive retailer, not a proactive retailer. So most publishers, big and small, but especially the interesting independent publishers will tell you that Waterstones don't buy books from them anymore. They buy very small quantities, mm. you know, wh where they might have bought 200 300 400 copies of a book and made sure stores had two or three copies maybe five copies you know really got behind it they'll now take 50 copies of the book put them in a handful of stores and see what happens mm -hmm. and that's increasingly <clears throat> a very cautious retailer now they still try and make them you know make books and big successes but they they, they play it very safe they don't really take a huge amount of risks and that's perfectly understandable and that's a perfectly reasonable retail approach however they're not a particularly I would say they're not a massively commercial retailer either these days. So, you know, in some respects, I think they're their own worst enemy. If you go into a Waterstones, one of the first things you see is the non-fiction hardback, A to Z. That's at the front of most stores. Where's, where's the book chart? Where are the most popular books in the country? What offer are you giving me on the most popular books in the country? They're there, but they don't make a song and dance about them. And that's very much their philosophy. And I, and I just think, well, you know, I want to go into a bookshop and be hit by loads of great recommendations. And, and, mm. I, that happens to be more in independent bookshops than it does in, in Waterstones. WH Smiths aren't really a bookshop. They're a stationers that stocks books. There are no book, there are no booksellers in WH Smiths. That's the mm. thing. You know, the, the, you can't go into a WH Smith and say, can you recommend, recommend a good book to me? You can do that with Waterstones. You can do yeah. that with independent. So, so retail wise, I've got a question mark over Waterstones, but I think I've got high hopes for the independence. When it comes to publishing, I, I actually, I actually think it could be really interesting that, you know, I, I, we've mentioned a little bit about the, the literary review pages. They have finite space. They can't review everything. They do not owe anyone a review. But there are certain books every week which they will be expected to review. So they haven't got a lot of space. But 
and their space is reducing. But that does limit their relevance. You know, if you like comic fiction or fantasy fiction or sci-fi or things that aren't literary fiction or major literary nonfiction, you don't go to those newspapers for reviews because they don't review those books. You, you will have your favourite blogger or your favourite tweeter or your favourite bookstagrammer or whatever it might be. Mm. So I think people are... Uh, book recommendations and word of mouth are still the main thing that matters and people are finding the best places for that. You know, I do not read... I don't read review pages in newspapers I haven't done for years because I know how hard it is to get in. I think we, you're, they're missing more than they're covering. That's just the nature of the beast. I look elsewhere. I look for, I look at online journals, you know, there's um, a website called the Asian review of books. Cause I, I, I tend to like uh, books in translation from, from Japan and Korea and, and, and other Southeast Asian countries. So that's a nice site I go to. There's a wonderful website called the neglected books page, which, does very frequent reviews of books that are forgotten and out of print. So I, I go to lots of different places for my recommendations, and I think other readers do that too, whether that be someone they know on Twitter or, or Instagram or whatever. So I think recommendation is going to be the key thing. And the other thing is just producing beautiful editions. Mm. You know, people will pay £20 for a book if it looks good. Yes. And not, everyone, not everyone can afford that. But people who have that level of disposable income, if a book is gorgeous, will pay that amount and they and it doesn't and, and also just they don't necessarily doesn't even necessarily have to be a massive i mean i bought i bought a book yesterday is it called nina simone's gum or miss simone's gum by warren ellis so warren ellis is, is a member of the bad seeds nick cave's band yeah. and nina simone one uh, late in her life mm-hmm. played a played a gig that uh, that nick cave had curated and there's, there's warren ellis basically has these wonderful stories about nina simone and and and, and but so I, I think it's like the book is under 200 pages and it cost me 20 quid, mm. but I don't mind <laughs> because I want the book. And, and so, so I think gradually some publishers are <clears throat> testing how much people are prepared to pay for books because books are ridiculously cheap and undervalued. A, a really good example is I, I reissued a book last year called Appius and Virginia by G. Oh, yeah. And it's a paperback and we charged 15 quid for it. And we, and it's one of the best selling books uh, like I've done in recent years uh, because people love the story. The, 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 there was this basically an amazing woman who's the first, first woman to win the Oxford University Poetry Prize in the 1930s. And she, when she graduated, she moved into a flat in London and just wrote. All she did was wrote books. Gertrude Trevelyan, her name is. And those books were published one a year. And then she was injured in the Blitz and died. And no one had ever heard of her again. No. Very few people no, have heard of it. Yeah, yeah you, uh, you sent me a PDF of that, didn't you? And it, yeah. It's, it's an extraordinary book. Yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah. And uh, Brad yeah. Bigelow at the Neglected Book page had been championing her. I'd mm. looked into it. I managed <clears> to find <throat> some copies and we digitised this one. And uh, uh, it's about a woman who tries to raise an orangutan as a human. Written in the 1930s. Absolutely remarkable book. And it's a paperback. I mean, it's like, you know what? The only p- This isn't a book you're going to buy randomly. It's not a book you're going to stumble across and go, oh, maybe I'll give it a go. You're only going to buy this book if you're interested in it. So bugger it. I'll charge 15 quid because that makes it commercially viable for us. And we've had we haven't had a single person say it's too expensive. and We haven't had a single person complain about it. And it sold really well. So. So, yeah, I think we, the, the future of the book world may mean slightly more expensive books or better editions of books or things being priced sort of quite strategically. So, no, I, I mean, I, you know, I think and, and the balance between digital and print has, has found its level you know there are certain books i read digitally there are certain books i read in print so yeah i think there is a strong future but i think the future will look 
a bit different. Quite how different, I'm not sure. But but I think we could see more expensive books. We could see a change in the retail sector. There's room for a new retailer to come in. I think if someone stepped in and looked to, you know, like Otakas of old, you know, if someone came in and thought, Look, I'm going to start, I think there's room for that. Someone doing something a bit different and interesting, sort of a mix between sort of really commercial and, and, and literary recommendation. I think that could work quite well. Mm. And the other thing that might happen uh, which has happened in other countries is publishers might start opening bookshops in Scandinavia. Right. The, the bookshops are <clears throat> mainly owned by publishers. I really had to know that. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're, they're, uh, you know, there may be reasons why that doesn't happen, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, you know, if Waterstones had to sell off, you know, a third of their estate, I wouldn't be surprised if Penguin Random House or someone stepped in and bought them. That would be a really interesting acquisition if you ask me. Mm. Yeah. But who knows? The, the, the honest answer is we haven't got a clue. <laughs> Right. Well, thank you very much for coming along. It's been really fascinating. Uh, it's an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for introducing me to the Wise Men of Shielder. So and many I'm versions of it. I'm so looking forward to reading the proper version of it one day. Yeah, the Wise Men of all the Shielders, uh, the yes. various Shielder. <clears throat> I had no idea. No, no, I'm, I'm delightful to be here. Obviously, it's very little effort. I've just sat at my desk and turned my computer on. <laughs> so it really wasn't a struggle. And and thanks for uh, for prompting me to reread this book, which I yeah. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed. Great stuff. Okay. This place is intended to be free from adverts, as if anyone would pay to advertise here anyway. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to reward us by buying our books and uh, or getting Scott to edit yours. Scott is on Twitter as uh, me and my big mouth. And while he doesn't have a website anymore, he occasionally posts at medium.com. I'm on Twitter as John Pinnock and my website is at jonathanpinnock.com. This podcast now has its own Twitter account as litbutpod and DMs are open or email me on litbutpod at gmail.com. And do please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people find out about all the fascinating stuff here. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to the award-winning writer Jane Lovering about Northanger Abbey. Yes, we do Jane Austen here too. We're nothing and not eclectic. See you then. Right, and that is it. Well done.